Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11? As we said a couple weeks ago, when we entered into chapter 11, we said John chapter 11 is both an important and interesting chapter for a number of reasons. It's important because it contains the last of seven miracles performed by Jesus that John chose to record in his gospel, and he did that for a very specific reason, as we have quoted from the last part of his gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John said, look, Jesus did a lot of miracles. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So many that all the volumes in the world couldn't contain all that he did. Hyperbole, probably, but who knows. But I've chosen these seven miracles that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John shows seven miracles to present in his gospel, and the goal was that people would read these miracles, see what Jesus did, that they would realize he is the Son of God and would get saved. Now, the last miracle that John records is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And as we said a couple weeks ago, this was by far the most sensational of all of his miracles, even though Lazarus wasn't the only one that Jesus had raised from the dead. We know that, uh, that um, Luke and Mark record that Jesus raised two others from the dead beside Lazarus. There might have been others, but there's recorded in the Gospels three that he raised from the dead. Of course, Jairus's daughter is one that we remember very well. The other one, maybe not as uh, well known, or that you might remember it so readily, but there was a widow who lived in a town called Nain, and her only son died. He was older. He took care of her, no doubt, and so he died. She was going to be left destitute, and uh, an act of mercy, Jesus went there and raised her son from the dead. But as spectacular as any resurrection is, obviously, um, I do think that the raising of Lazarus from the dead is separate from even those other two that Jesus raised from the dead, in that he raised them from the dead shortly after they died, where he raised Lazarus from the dead four days after he had passed, which meant decay and decomposition had begun to take place, which in my mind makes the resurrection of Lazarus even more unique and spectacular. But John 11 is also important, guys, because along with chapter 12, it forms the transition between the, pub, between the close of the public ministry of Jesus in chapter 10 and the final events that surround his life, uh, excuse me, that surround his death and resurrection uh, found in chapters 13 to 21. Uh, when the time that you enter into third, uh, the, the last half of the book, I mean, I'm doing this from memory, uh, records uh, one half of the gospel records uh, one week of Jesus' life, and half of that records the last 24 hours. So John really zeroes in on the last week and the last day of Jesus' crucifixion, last week of his life before the cross, uh, in a way that the other synoptic gospels don't. He gives us insights that we don't get from the other three. Okay, so we'll study those as we go. But this uh, 11 and 12 form the transition between Jesus' public ministry and then now transitioning into the last week of his life where he is going to be focusing his attention on his disciples, 
preparing them to take the mantle up after he is gone uh, and continue the ministry going forward. But uh, we also learned a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, that chapter 11 is also a very important chapter for no other reason in that it gives us a basis for understanding, at least some basis, for understanding why God allows suffering in our lives. And in that regard, guys, this chapter presents a truth about God that many don't seem to understand or even are unwilling to accept, and that is that God will allow sickness in our lives and suffering to bring Him glory. We'll talk about that more in a second. So the first point of this chapter, I've divided it up into several main points. Uh, the first one, verses 1 to 5, uh, I've called the critical friend, <laughs> not critical hearted, critically ill, okay? Verse 1, we'll review a little bit. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. We will study her act of worship when we get to chapter 12. Verse 3, Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, guys, there are many who believe that God, as I said, would never or even could never use sickness to glorify himself. Uh, those who say that don't know the Bible. Because, and I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn to it. Uh, you remember Paul, uh, the apostle, right? Second uh, Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. Paul said, uh, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation that God gave me. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And so Paul said, Because I would have a tendency to be puffed up by that, my pride would get the best of me, God has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, most gladly, I, would, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Could be a word that describes sickness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So God obviously will use sickness in our lives to grow us, to strengthen us, and to ultimately to glorify his name through us. And those that maybe didn't understand that at this point might say, well, okay then, uh, if God does use sickness for his glory, then he can't be a God of love. Anticipating that response, the Holy Spirit quickly adds in verse 5 of John 11, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This whole narrative was being set up for the disciples' benefit and for God's glory. And guys, God will, as I said before, will sometimes use sickness for his glory. And because of it, John adds verse 5, because he doesn't want us to get the wrong idea that perhaps Jesus just didn't care about this family, didn't care about Lazarus, what he was going through, or his sisters. He was indifferent to their family's pain at this difficult time. 
In verse 5, John used a different Greek word for love than he did in verse 3. In verse 3 we read, Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That is the Greek word phileo, and it's a word that means to be fond of, to be fond of, usually used for brotherly love, but also is often used for the affectionate love of close friends for each other. Phileo love is an emotional kind of love, whereas the word for love in verse 5 is the verb form of agape. Agape love is, the, is most often used for God's love in the New Testament. The ultimate example of that would be John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell but would have everlasting life. As we have said before, I'll say it again, agape love is not really an emotional love. I'm not saying that emotion can't be a part of it in some way. But agape love is a sacrificial love that loves unconditionally and absolutely because it is separated from emotion. Again, it doesn't mean you can't agape someone and not have any emotion. I mean, okay, but you can agape your enemies. How? By loving them unconditionally to the point where you meet their needs. That's what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. Meet their needs. If somebody you, that is an enemy has a need, they need food or shelter or something, you can help them out, help them out. Because in so doing, you're showing God's love to them, which is not feelings-oriented, it's action-oriented. Whereas phileo, love is a friendship love, uh, reciprocal love. I love you because you love me. We're buds. We got this, this mutual affection going for each other, right? You don't have that with an enemy. But you can still love an enemy with God's love. And that's the idea. This is God's love for us, that while we were his enemies... We were at enmity with God. Christ died for us. This is the love of God in operation. It's a love that gives. It meets needs. God so loved the world that he gave. Didn't feel sorry for us and then moved on. He gave his only begotten son. Now listen, if God so loved this family, then why did he allow Lazarus to get sick in the first place? And especially to die. Well, again, we're not left to guess. Jesus tells us it was to bring glory to God. Verse 4. Guys, it's critical that we understand this fact before we progress in the story. That Jesus had a deep agape, agape love. He had a deep, deep love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, God's telling us that up front. Before we get into the story, because what comes next if we didn't know that, we might be prone to think he didn't care about this family. Hang on to that thought, okay? But it's critical that we understand this fact, that he agaped this family and had a deep, deep love for all of them. And again, if the Holy Spirit had made it a point to tell us that, we'd be prone to think from what comes next in the story. Like God in general, and Jesus in particular, wasn't different towards Lazarus and his sisters, what they were going through. This was the feeling of many in that culture back then. I'm talking about the pagans now. It was a, a, a common belief and feeling among pagans that the gods were, as they called it, apatheia. A Greek word, we get our word apathetic from. The gods were apathetic. 
In other words, towards the suffering of mortals. In other words, uh, they just didn't care what humans were going through and had to be appeased or bribed through offerings to motivate them to act on their behalf. In other words, to get the gods to act on the behalf of mortals who they didn't really care about. But if they were appeased through offerings and things, they might be persuaded to act in some positive way towards the plight of a human being, a mortal person, right? In fact, in these ancient pagan cultures, human sacrifice was the ultimate offering in order to secure a god's favor. So the idea that, and guys, don't miss this, we've got 2,000 years of church history behind us. Put yourself in the first century Greco-Roman pagan world and how they thought about the gods and how they believed the gods felt about them. And now here comes somebody, well, not just one person, uh, Jesus, of course, but then the apostles and other disciples, of course, going around the ancient world, talking about a God, the God of Christian Christianity, who didn't want human sacrifice, ever, but actually offered himself as a sacrifice in order to save lowly mankind from a judgment it had brought upon itself. We were guilty. We were sinners. Adam blew it for all of us. The family of Adam bears a blood curse upon it. In Adam all die. And here comes the disciples of Jesus Christ going into the pagan world saying, the God of Christianity does not want offerings and sacrifices. Definitely not offer your family members or any human being. In fact, we were all on our way to destruction, hellbound for eternity. He came down and, down and died for us. Think about how revolutionary that was if you're a pagan. And how it drew you to this God of absolute love that you've never in your life thought a God could be like that. Because he is the true and living God. So we've seen the critical friend, verses 1 to 5. Verse 6, one verse, the callous Savior. So, excuse me, so when he heard that he was sick, Jesus, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Let that soak in for a minute. The girls sent him an urgent message. Lord, come quickly. Your dear friend Lazarus is gravely ill. Jesus hung out the place a couple more days where he was staying. Then he makes the journey. Not exactly the actions of a good friend, right? Warren Worsby said, The record makes it clear that there was a strong love relationship between Jesus and this family, yet our Lord's behavior seems to contradict this love. Guys, and I've said it before, I, I think it, you can't say it enough. We have to know that God loves us based on what he has told us in his word and not based on our circumstances because our circumstances don't always indicate that God loves us. And if we didn't have his word where he tells us, Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah 29, uh, 11. Look, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They're, they're, they're not thoughts of evil. They're thoughts of good. I'm working for your good all the time. And what is the good God is working towards? Our earthly comfort or our heavenly rewards? 
And if God has to sacrifice a little earthly comfort to give us an eternal reward that is great and awesome, he'll do that. Especially if that, in, in putting us through some pain, will bring him glory, all right? Will bring him glory. Um, but guys, the devil tries to get us to get our eyes off of the word and onto our circumstances. Because if he can do that, he can whisper in our ear, if God was really a loving God, if he really loved you, would he be letting you go through this? Would he be putting you through this? And you know what? A lot of Christians listen to that because they let their circumstances dictate if God is really a good, loving God rather than what God has said about himself and his word. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and um, there was a Calvary pastor who was speaking. And I knew that um, years earlier he had gotten married, and him and his wife had three children who were still very small, and she was killed in a car accident. So he was left now as a pastor to raise three small children. At the time, his daughter, one daughter, two daughters and one son, at the time, his one little daughter, three years old, developed some kind of a infected boil. I, I just, from memory, okay? John, who's the pastor's name, took, takes her to the doctor's office. And the doctor takes a look at it and says, John, I got to lance this. It's full of poison. I'm not a doctor, so, you know, but I, this is the way the story was related to me. Uh, I've got to lance this. We got to get the poison out of there. And for some reason, he couldn't give her any kind of painkillers. Couldn't put her under. He said, John, you're going to have to hold her down. Now, all of a sudden, this little girl, her father takes her in his arms tightly, and now she has, sees this stranger come and begins to cut this thing, I think it was on her neck, begins to cut it open. She's screaming, and she's screaming, Daddy, no, Daddy, no. She doesn't know. All she knows is her loving father, and he's holding her down so somebody could hurt her. And she's screaming, Daddy, no, Daddy, no. And finally she passes out from the pain. John picks her up, takes her home. Three weeks later, this thing comes back. Calls the doctor. The John, you got to bring her back in. Now, as soon as they pull up to the place where the doctor is, she sees the building, she starts screaming. He's got to take her in, she's screaming, Daddy, no, Daddy, no. Takes her in, holds her down, the doctor cuts this thing open, she's screaming, Daddy, please, please, Daddy, no. Eventually, she passes out again from the pain. On the way home, John does some business with the Lord. He says, Lord, I don't know why you allowed this. Why did she have to go through this? And John says, God spoke to me as clearly as he ever has, not audibly, but in my heart. And he said, John, there are times when I have got to subject you to pain. There is poison in your heart towards me. You may not even know it. It's there. I see it. There's things that are hindering your walk. They're hindering all I can do in your life. Your little girl didn't know why you would allow her to go through this kind of pain. You knew why you, you did it. Because if you didn't, she was going to die. John, when I put you through pain, you've got to realize I love you. That can't be up for you know, debate. You've got to know it. You have got to know it like you've never known anything in your life that I love you. Even when you're going through the pain I inflict in your life, 
No, it's for a reason. I'm not an evil God that wants to just hurt you for the pleasure of hurting you. Uh, there is eternal purposes attached to why I put you through some pain. John said, that was a pretty powerful lesson. I've never forgotten it. Maybe we can hold on to it too because it's, it's true. Now listen, one more time, the background for this chapter is that Jesus and his disciples were down by the Jordan River um, near Bethabara, which is about 20 miles from Bethany, which meant it was a two-day journey by foot. Mary and Martha sent an urgent, quote-unquote, prayer request right, to Jesus. That was what it was, basically, a prayer request. Come quickly, right? Uh, prayer request to Jesus to come and heal Lazarus, who was seriously ill, but Jesus delayed his coming for a couple days. Remember, um, when it comes to prayer, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, it could be that he is teaching us to wait, teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that when he does finally work, the way he works will be more spectacular than anything we could have ever imagined. Okay, now, sometimes the answer to your prayer is no. We've got to be sensitive to that too. But often God is saying, look, I have a time for everything I do. My timing is perfect. Therefore, Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. We have to understand that. We want to pray like David, answer me speedily, O Lord. Sometimes he does. It's great when you say, Lord, can you, will you answer me quickly? And he does. That's awesome. But he often doesn't do it that way. He makes you pray and pray. Well, why? Well, he likes to have you in his presence. Okay? I'm convinced that's one of the big reasons he doesn't answer our prayers right away. It's like, you know, we don't pray unless, you know, the, the roof is caving in and, and, and everything is, you know, in our lives is, is coming apart, right? We haven't prayed in weeks, maybe. Seriously, I'm not saying you throw up a prayer before bed or over a meal, okay? Which, for some of us, that could be all day praying, but... Uh, you know, but we haven't really seriously spent time. We got a long time. So he causes things to start falling down around us and everything is shaking and crumbling. And we, you know, rush up to our bedroom, hit the floor, slide across the room on our knees uh, to the bed. God, help me. Oh, Lord, Lord, it's good to hear from you. We haven't talked in a while. You know, that kind of thing, right? I mean, I'd like to tell you, we, we never do that for the Lord, that he has to kind of force the issue, but we do. But uh, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And it's been my experience in 40 years of ministry that God will often let the circumstance become so dire and so desperate, so beyond human ability to work it out, so that when he does step in and work it out, it's so miraculous, we don't take the credit for it, and we give him all the glory. The bottom line, guys, the longer God delays, often, not always, but often, the more spectacular the results. So don't fret, get excited. And in the meantime, as Jesus taught us, keep asking and seeking and knocking in our prayers. But listen, not even Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus could force him to act ahead 
of his father's will. As I just said, Jesus was working on a divine timetable. He always did what the father wanted. He was always working off of uh, the father's divine timetable. And so when Jesus hung out two more days before making the two-day journey to Bethany, understand the father told him not to go immediately, but to wait those two days. So we see the critical friend, the callous savior, supposedly. Number three, the concerned disciples. Again, verse six, so when he heard he was sick, when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews, and, and again, that's the term for the Jewish leadership, and I'm thinking primarily of the scribes and Pharisees now. They said, uh, Lord, Rabbi, lately the Jewish leadership sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Now look, Jesus' disciples were rightly concerned about them returning to the area of Jerusalem. Remember, Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. So it was a suburb of Jerusalem. And they were rightly concerned about going back there. They had kind of made a hasty retreat after what had happened at the end of chapter 10. Look back to verse 25 of John 10. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and scribes. He said to them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So they, don't, they didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. They, they didn't believe he was the Messiah, these religious leaders. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That was the statement that got him in trouble with these people. We know that because verse 31 then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. What the disciples didn't know, that's why they left town. And now Jesus wants to go back there. And they were afraid. Well, Lord, is it wise for us to go back to the area of Jerusalem? They wanted to kill you last time we were there. What they didn't know was that until the day of Jesus' crucifixion, listen, the time appointed by the Father, nothing or no one was going to hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus responds to their concern with an important truth. Verse 9, he answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, guys, in that culture, I think both the Jews and the Romans did this. They divided each day, each 24-hour period, into two parts. One they called the hours of light and the other the hours of darkness. Now, they weren't always divided equally, as you know. Okay, Sometimes you're living in a, a, a part of the year where uh, it's more light than darkness. But this was the way, just a, uh, the way they did it just in general terms. Okay? in general terms. And the idea that Jesus is picking up on, very simple truth, the Lord Jesus Christ used very simple truths that they were all familiar with, a lot of times agricultural truths, because they were all farmers and things. 
Um, but here he uses a very simple truth, but then applies it spiritually. Um, he, he knew that in that culture at that time, men worked while there was still enough light to see what they were doing. I mean, the light of the sun, right? And that was important because they needed to see what they were doing and where they were going. Because if it got too dark and they worked a job that might have been, we'll say, dangerous, uh, without enough light, they're going to hurt themselves or maybe even kill themselves or walking along a path and stepped off the path and fell down a ravine and died. Pretty obvious, pretty simple, straightforward idea, right? That people work and they walk in the light when the sun is shining. When it's nighttime, people tend to stay inside them, uh, you know, because that's what they did in those days when the sun went down. They didn't have... Uh, like we have. They, they had oil-burning lamps that gave some light, but not enough light where you could work like today. You've got these floodlights and things that, you know, played night baseball games. I mean, if you've ever been in a night baseball game with those floodlights going, it's amazing. It's amazing. But there is a spiritual application to what the Lord said here, all right? Sp spiritual application. Um, in Scripture... Light and darkness are often used as metaphors. And I've talked about this before. Light is often used in Scripture to represent spiritual truth, holiness, moral purity, and obedience toward God. And darkness is often used in the Scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. The spiritual application of walking in the light is that it represents walking in obedience to God's Word and in accordance with God's will. That's what Jesus said he did. He said, you know, I am the light of the world. Um, he who follows after me shall not stumble in darkness. Well, because he was following the Father. He was doing the Father's will. He was obeying the, the word of God. And as such, those that followed him would be walking in the same light he himself was walking in, and so on. So the metaphor for walking in the light represents walking in obedience to the word of God in accordance with the will of God. Day, in this passage, uh, day represents, I think, uh, maybe not entirely, but part of it would be that it represents the time allotted to each of us by God uh, to live our lives upon the earth. Again, John 9, 4, okay, that, you know, uh, work while it's still day. The night is coming when no one can work. We only have a limited amount of time, our day, the day of our life. We only have a limited amount of time. So use it for the glory of God is what Jesus was saying in John 9, verse 4, and alluding to right here in chapter 11. The night represents a person who is not living in obedience to God and his word, but also, guys, could represent the end of a person's life. And how that the day, quote-unquote, of God's grace had come to an end, and the night, quote-unquote, of judgment was now upon them. Uh, do I have a scripture to back that up? Of course I do. Remember in the upper room, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Remember in the upper room, the night of the Passover meal. Jesus and the twelve apostles were up in that room, right? And uh, Jesus starts to talk about how one would betray him and, uh, and all. And uh, they're all asking, buzzing among themselves, who is it? Who is it? You know, is it me? Is it me? You know? and, and, and Judas is reclining right behind Jesus. 
And he kind of leans over and says, Rabbi, is it me? You know who it is. You know it's you. And so Judas quickly gets up and leaves the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ. The other disciples, clueless, thought he was going out to buy something for the Passover meal. But you remember in John's gospel what the Holy Spirit makes a point to say? As soon as Judas left the room, and it was what? Night. Judas left the room, and it says, and it was night. Well, of course it was night. Passover meal doesn't even begin till sundown. No, the Holy Spirit wasn't stating some obvious thing. He was saying, for Judas, the day of opportunity, the day of grace, the time when he could have repented, not gone through this, and got his life right with the Lord, was over. And now the darkness of judgment was upon him. Author William MacDonald adds another idea for understanding Jesus' words here. He said, and I quote, The spiritual meaning of the Lord's words is as follows. The Lord Jesus was walking in perfect obedience to the will of his Father. There was thus no danger of his being killed before the appointed time. He would be preserved until his work was done. In a sense, this is true of every believer. If we are walking in fellowship with the Lord and doing his will, there is no power on earth that can kill us before God's appointed time, end quote. There's a tradition that says that, uh, that um, the, one of the Roman emperors uh, captured John the Apostle uh, and threw him, had him thrown into a, a, a big pot of boiling oil to kill him. But God wouldn't let John die. And so they pulled him out, and they finally, the emperor sent him to the Isle of Patmos. Remember what he did on that island of Patmos? He wrote the book of Revelation. God wasn't done with him yet. And until God is done with you and me, we are indestructible. Yeah, but I don't know when God's done with me. Well, that's the problem. Okay. You know, that is the problem. But if you keep walking with the Lord and just follow him, okay, stay obedient. You will have all the time you need to finish the work he's given you to do. Verse 11, John 11 these things he said, after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get well. Because it's good, right? Because the guy's sick, he's sleeping, that's good. You know, if you're sick, you need to sleep. It'll help you get better. That's what they were thinking. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, now, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> uh, all right. We get hard on the disciples. You know, they weren't spirit-filled yet, okay? So they were thinking like, more like natural men, although they were saved. Uh, no, 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 I'm not talking about Lazarus taking a nap. He's dead, okay? That's, okay, bottom line. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. This is all being set up. For God's glory, but for the disciples' benefit. Okay, we'll talk more about what that means next time, God willing. I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Now, was that sarcasm or was that sincerity? I'll let you judge. Commentators are divided. Was he saying, let's all go with the Lord because if we die, praise God, we're, we're with the Lord. But if you know Thomas, I kind of think he was like, yeah, okay, let's all go so we can all die. I kind of think he was being sarcastic, but that's me, okay? Maybe the guy was sincere. I don't know. Now, guys, when Jesus presented Lazarus' death to his disciples as sleep, it was because he wanted to differentiate between the death of a believer from that of an unbeliever. This was something the disciples of Jesus and later Paul embraced and passed along to the church in their writings. I won't have you turn to these. You can write down the references. Remember in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gave his defense against the Sanhedrin and said a few things at the end they didn't like and they, they stoned him, right? We read in Acts 7 verse 60, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this charge, excuse me, do, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. No, they killed him. But the way Luke records it, he fell asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14, Paul said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. These are Christians who have died, but they're likened, they're likened to be sleeping. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Talking about the rapture. Not all of us are going to be dead at the time of the rapture, but many will be sleeping. Paul would later elaborate on this by calling our earthly physical bodies tents. Why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians 5? He elaborated on this by calling our earthly physical bodies tents that our soul indwells. Guys, the soul is the real you. The body is the vehicle that God has given for your soul to live in while you're on the earth. That body is not the real you. It's tragic in our society that people put so much emphasis on the body as if that's everything. That's that's. You. No, it isn't. It's a vehicle that my soul lives in. And this one is like a broken down 68 Volkswagen. I'm waiting for the Ferrari he's going to give me someday that I can move into. We'll talk about that more in a second. But 2 Corinthians 5, not the Ferrari, but okay. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Paul said, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he's talking about our physical bodies is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Paul said, look, we don't want to be disembodied spirits when we die. Our soul moves out, but we don't want to be disembodied spirits. God's got a new house 
that he has prepared for us. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For if we are in this, for we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed without a body, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In other words, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. That's what God's way of guaranteeing you. You're going to get a new body someday and live with him in heaven forever. That's his guarantee, right? Verse 6, so we are always confident, knowing that while we, were at, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Guys, Paul is saying that these earthly bodies are tents. That God is pitched here on the earth for our soul to live in. Temporary houses, tents. Okay, a tent is not a permanent structure, right? You take a tent out to camp out for a few days. Uh, you don't typically live in a tent. It's not designed for that, right? And these bodies were not designed for eternity. They were designed for time. Uh, and as such, our spirit or our soul indwells this tent for a short period compared to eternity, right? A short period. And, um, but at the time of death, this tent, you might say, is taken down uh, and the body is placed into the grave and at, at which time, the moment of death, the soul of the believer moves out and goes into the presence of the Lord. He just said it here in verse 8. Now, at the time of the rapture, we receive a permanent structure for our soul to live in. First, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building. Now, he's talking in earthly terms to get across this point. Um, but of course, you know, this body is not technically a tent, as you would think of a tent, and our glorified body is not a building. But he's talking like, you know, where we live, basically, okay? So it, we know that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. We have a building, spiritual temple is the idea from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Guys, when Paul calls calls this new glorified body that we will inhabit someday a house not made with hands he is referring to the fact that our future glorified bodies are not going to be made with hands or in other words they are not going to be of this creation they are not going to be of this creation what paul is saying in second corinthians 5 verse 1 is that our physical bodies are of the original creation genesis 1 adam and eve were formed out of the dust of the ground God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And all of us have become, have, been, have descended from these two earthly people made from the earth. These physical bodies are of the original creation, which was corrupted and is going to be replaced with a new creation. And that's what these future bodies, glorified bodies, that's what they're going to be a part of, the new creation. And as such, they're going to be designed by God, not for earth. They're going to be designed by God for heaven. Aren't you glad for that? Can you imagine, you know, we're, again, right now we're getting by with these busted uh, down old jalopies we're living in. 
And the older I get, the more of a jalopy my body is. Can you imagine stepping into a, a model that is suited for heaven? A body that you can move across the universe, a brand new universe, at the speed of light? That's way too slow. At the speed of thought. And God has got this body for us, you know? It's like if God said, look, I'm going to take you off the earth and I'm going to let, I want you to now live in the ocean. Either we have to wear a diving suit the whole time or he says, no, I'll give you a body that's fit for the ocean that you can breathe underwater and made for the, that environment. Same thing with our physical bodies. These bodies are great for the physical environment we're in right now, but it's not, they're not suited for heaven. Rather than give us a spacesuit that we will wear for eternity, to function in heaven, he said, I'm going to give you a new body. I'll give you a brand new model. I'm waiting for that, Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read just verses, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 54. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So he's talking about what we just talked about, that these earthly bodies, flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, okay? Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. These bodies are dying. They're wearing out. They're not designed for eternity. But the new model, our glorified body, will be eternal and incorruptible. Never grow old, never die, that kind of thing. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we uh, shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So then this corruptible uh, has been, uh, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we have a glorious future ahead of us. And as somebody has said, if you're an unbeliever, this life is the best it will ever get for you. If you're a Christian, this life is the worst that you will ever experience in all eternity. Because what awaits us, as Paul said, these, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory how do we deal with this life? We keep our eyes on the things that are unseen, not on the things that are seen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. As things get rough, guys, and I don't know how rough it's going to get, but as things get rough, keep your eyes on the eternal. Know with all your heart God is good and he loves you more than you could ever know. And whatever happens, happens. And when we close our eyes in this life, a second later we will open them in the next life.
And that is an existence we can only imagine. We have no ability to grasp. Now, there is something here, and I'm going to have to save it for next week. There is a doctrine that has emerged out of this idea that when those Christians die, they sleep in Jesus. And uh, it's a doctrine that I want you to come back next week. We'll look at a little bit. I wanted to cover it today. We're out of time. We'll, we'll start with that, and then we will move on in chapter 11, that I think is one of the most powerful chapters in all the Bible. And so we'll look at that next time. Come on back, and uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, you give us grace that we will keep our eyes on the eternal, not on the temporal. And that, Lord, we would really come to realize and to come to grips with in our uh, hearts. This world is passing away. And we might see it pass away in a way that we never thought we would see. We might see America crumble and fall. We might see our freedoms be taken from us. We might see all that we have built our lives upon in the sense of material things that we have worked hard to gather, they all might be taken from us. If so, we need grace to keep our eyes on you. That we not fret, become angry. We just keep our eyes on you, Lord. We have a home waiting in heaven that is something we can't even imagine right now. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.